It's never going to be perfect. And so many people, they're expecting perfection out of something like their pricing because they've never changed their prices. They're really scared of it. They think people don't realize that things cost money. Um, they realize that, you know, oh, I'm, I'm scared because my customers aren't going to like it. And what's fascinating about it is that most of the time people totally understand that things cost money. and. You, you have to be willing to not have perfect pricing and make this part of a process and make this part of development. And so to answer your question, and I know I'm getting a little bit soapboxy from your particular <laughs> question, but it's something that I'm pretty passionate about where everyone's just like, oh, it's one and done. And it's like, is your acquisition one and done? Is your marketing one and done? Is your retention? No, it's part of a process. And it's one of the highest you know, growth levers in terms of impact in your business, but you're basically not making any decisions. So the big question is this, how do you grow your SaaS company? In an era where information is everywhere and every book, expert, blog, and podcast is evangelizing different paths to scale, how do you figure out which path is right for you and your SaaS company? My name is Shivna Narayanan and I'm your host and growth advisor. Formerly, I was the CMO of Wild Apricot and grew to 20 million in ARR without a sales team. This podcast is about a simple idea, that growth can be engineered. Each episode, I will help you filter through the noise and curate and distill growth strategies to help you succeed in growing your SaaS company. Welcome to How to SaaS. Let's get started. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about how you can work with How to SaaS and what kinds of clients we work with. We have three solutions. We provide CMO consulting, where we walk you through our nine box marketing framework to fully audit your funnel and marketing activities and we give you a strategy and roadmap to scale your demand generation and digital marketing. Number two, we provide PE advisory services where we work with private equity investors to scale the growth of their portfolio companies through consulting programs, training, and board member services. And number three, we run the world's flagship demand generation training program for SaaS companies and their marketing executives, leaders, and team members. It's a 12-week intensive that gives you the frameworks you need to scale your SaaS company's demand generation using paid media, SEO, content marketing, nurture programs, website optimization, and more. To check out all these solutions and to get more information, set up a free consult at www.howtosass.com. Also, if you like the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher and leave us a rating or review so that other people looking for content like this can also discover it. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Now, on to the show. When I first joined Wild Apricot back in 2014, uh, I was trying to look at all the different levers that we had available to us to grow the business. And it came to my attention that we had never increased our prices in the company's entire existence. Uh, so Wild Apricot was founded in 2006. So in eight years, um, the company had never increased its prices. And you think about all the things that we had done in that eight-year span to make the software better, the features that we added, the different modules that we had added. Wild Apricot was an all-in-one solution and we launched, we didn't even have a website builder included. And by 2014, we did. We had launched something that we called version five, uh, which was our, uh, it took us three years to uh, create that version, which was a significant improvement upon previous versions of our software. We had been ranked the number one membership software in the market for three years in a row. 
We had 15,000 customers. In fact, I even met a, uh, a consultant um, at a conference once and they were advising one of our competitors uh, called Aptify and uh, the guys at Aptify had told this consultant, we cannot understand how wild apricots price is so low. Uh, we we can't figure out our cost of acquisition model to uh, justify such a, such a low price. Um, in fact, when we surveyed the entire market, wild apricots price was at least two times cheaper, if not more, than the next uh, competitor. And even then, we were better than them in terms of functionality. And so despite all of that, we hadn't... <laughs> We, had, we hadn't increased our prices in eight years. And um, a big part of that was fear and a lack of confidence and worrying that customers would take it the wrong way and trying to figure out if we could actually increase our prices and be able to keep our customers. Uh, and so that was a journey to get the whole team on board and um, uh, put the plans in place to increase our prices in 2015. And we went through a six-month planning cycle Planned for every worst case scenario, prepared the support team, prepared the product team, prepared the marketing team, got the messaging ready, and then finally launched with a higher price point. And what we found was it went over perfectly. Um, customers were super understanding. In fact, they were they were grateful for all the improvements that we had made in the product. Uh, and they were supportive of uh, paying a higher price point. Now, we did lose some customers in the process, but not really that many. Um, most of them ended up staying with us and we ended up having one of our best financial years ever from an expansion revenue standpoint and a profit standpoint. Uh, so the big lesson for me from, from that pricing increase was Wild Apricot was severely underpriced. Um, and I would argue that it still is because even even now our next closest competitor is at least 1.5 times more expensive than Wild Apricot is. Um, and so a lot of companies face this problem which is uh, what is the correct price for your SaaS product? Um, so this is why I wanted to bring the pricing expert in the SaaS space onto the show. His name is Patrick Campbell. You may be familiar with him. He's the founder of ProfitWell, and um, he has a show on on LinkedIn called Pricing Page Teardown. And he's uh, been building a lot of authority uh, in this space with the data that they've collected through ProfitWell, and uh, they've been gracious enough to constantly put out industry benchmark reports and case studies and uh, surveys to help other SaaS companies price their products better. So on this episode, Patrick and I discuss how to effectively price your SaaS company, what the process looks like in terms of research and planning and launching uh, newer prices for your SaaS product, and then how to test and measure whether or not your new price is effective to find um uh, find out what the right price point is for your SaaS company. So have a listen. I'm sure you will have plenty of takeaways for your SaaS company. And pricing is one of those hot button topics because it is one of the biggest levers that you will have for your SaaS company in terms of growth. So I hope you guys find this episode valuable. And if you do, uh, send me a note via email or put it in the comments. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Patrick, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. So why don't you start off by giving the audience a background about who it is uh, who it is that you are and what you do and about Price Intelligently and ProfitWell. Yeah, definitely. So uh, Patrick Campbell, founder, CEO of ProfitWell, and 
We are a company that helps subscription businesses of all kinds understand their data and their customers and then optimize for for high leverage growth opportunities. Uh, I realize that's pretty marketing speak, so let me explain <laughs> what exactly what happens. Basically, we have a free subscription financial metrics product that plugs into your billing system, whether it's Stripe, Zora, Braintree, Recurly, whatever you're using. And essentially, we give you free turnkey access to all of your monthly recurring revenue, churn, any number that you can think of. <laughs> Um, even engagement data. And then we give that away for free and then it allows us to, you know, show you opportunities. And then those opportunities are problems that you're having. Um, we have a couple of products that help with some of them. One is called Retain that helps you with your overall churn and your subscriber retention. And then the other is called uh, Price Intelligently, which, which helps with your overall pricing. Um, and at this point, we have about 25% of the entire subscription market using one or more of our products. And so we've, we've just got a whole bevy of data that I'm sure we'll we'll roll through here in some way in this conversation. Right. And so let's start with the very basics because you're helping all kinds of businesses, right? You're helping SaaS companies, any other subscription-based business like a subscription box, et cetera. So what are, what are the fundamentals when you're looking at a, a SaaS business? What are the key metrics that you're looking at and what somebody would be exposed to if they were to set up a ProfitWell account? Yeah, definitely. So the, the main metrics that we think about um, are, are super, super important, kind of fall into the natural three levers of your business, right? So your acquisition, your monetization, and your retention. So acquisition side, you're looking at trial conversion, the quality of those conversions, the time of conversion. Monetization, it's really looking at ARPU and the overall ARPU growth. And then retention is you know net revenue retention as well as your overall churn rate. And I would say that when, when we look at kind of combining some of these numbers like with something like lifetime value or even you know getting really fancy and combining combining, you know, your LTV by your customer acquisition cost by channel, you start to get, you know, some really, really powerful, powerful details. And to kind of summarize, though, I think that one of the really big things that we found for the most successful companies is that they do look at a lot of different, you know, products and a lot of different metrics. But at the end of the day, the number one thing they care about is overall growth based on kind of net new, new growth as well as existing user growth. And so that's kind of front and center that we put inside ProfitWell, which is, you know, you set a goal and then basically there's a goal line that kind of keeps you honest across, you know, a given particular month. And so, yeah, I would say it's, it's really about growth. And then, you know, breaking down from there, it's, you know, why is growth not happening and, and just logically looking at it. And, and I guess it's about looking at those three levers of growing a software company, which is one is increasing the number of new customers you're acquiring, expanding existing customer accounts, and then retaining the ones that you already have. Yeah, totally. And it, well, it's, I, I look at it more as, um, I, I would, I would modify that just slightly. I would say it's, you know, it's, it's obviously acquiring customers, it's growing the customers that you already have. And that's what I would consider retention and then monetization, which is kind of in the middle of those two, but is making sure that the companies that you acquire are, you know, at the right level in terms of pricing. And then that those existing companies, you've set your pricing up in a way that it makes that retention easy. So monetization is something that kind of bridges the growth gap between acquisition and retention. So you just opened a can of worms there, which is you gotta, <laughs> I love it. which is setting setting your pricing in a way that monetization and retention is easy. So how do you figure that out when you're looking across the board at all these metrics? And it's kind of like, you know, seeing the matrix, right? There's all these little dashboards. Well, how do you connect the dots to say whether or not your pricing strategy is right? 
Yeah, I think you just opened up a can of worms because I could talk about this for days. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if you're, I don't know if your your listeners are going to have enough time here. But I think the the basic tactic, especially you know in, in a voice medium like this, is really comes down to you have to understand who your customers are and pick that those target personas and ruthlessly focus on those target personas. And what I mean by that is a lot of us when we're building subscription businesses, and it really doesn't matter what type of subscription business, um, most of us what ends up happening is we're trying to spray and pray. We're trying to go after um, all types of different customers, whether it's you know all types of people who want my subscription box, all types of people who are going to join my association, or all types of people are going to use my software product. And the problem is, is that that is basically throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall and hoping some of it sticks. When you start to understand your customer and understand what makes them tick, what features they care about, what features they don't care about, what their willingness to pay looks like, what are the segment pieces or qualifications of those customers that are influencing someone who's higher willingness to pay versus lower willingness to pay, when you start to understand those things in the customer overall, then all of a sudden you can price based on that customer and then focus on them on the acquisition side And essentially, everything starts falling into place because you're acquiring the right user who looks at your price, realizes that it's exactly the value that they're expecting for that price. And then that person who's going to continue paying you is essentially not going to churn because they're essentially seeing the value that you're providing. And in this manner, something to focus on, and we can definitely go deeper here, is your price is the exchange rate on the value that you're providing. And the beauty of the subscription model is that the relationship with the customer is just so baked right into the revenue model, where essentially if that customer continues to get the value or sees the value initially in a sales opportunity, they're going to pay for the product and they're going to continue paying for the product. But so many of us from a monetization perspective and just as a company perspective don't understand who the buyer should actually be within our business. And so how do you figure that out? How do you figure out the different customer segments or personas and what price they're willing to pay. Because I think one of the things that you mentioned, which is, um, you know, some people have a higher willingness to pay or a lower willingness to pay. Well, that involves some kind of price discrimination or different different prices offered to different segments, right? But some software companies make their pricing public versus private. Like, how do you piece all of that together to make sure the different segments that you're going after are getting different pricing? Yeah, totally. So it really just comes down to customer research and collecting the right type of data. So a couple of ways I can answer this, but but to make it you know most practical for the folks listening in, in the shortest amount of time is you should have some sort of customer research and some sort of customer development function within your organization. And what that means is, is having qualitative conversations with your particular customers or target customers, even if they're not currently customers, about their pain points, what they care about, what they don't care about, even around your pricing. And then as you figure out different findings from those qualitative conversations, you should essentially quantify them by using different survey tactics, collect data that's statistically significant around their price elasticity, their relative preference for these features. And there's a couple of tools that I can share that are open source that you don't have to pay for that you can essentially use to collect this type of data. But the short answer is basically collect this data and then the answers start basically showing themselves inside the data. So you might find oh, listen, you know, there's no consensus amongst anyone who we think is our buyer around what features they care about, what features they don't care about. Well, that means that I can't 
put a specific tier or set of tiers on my pricing page because everyone's custom. It's more like an enterprise type deal. That means I need to contact us. I'm not going to put my pricing on my pricing page and I'm going to handle it based on the discovery sales call that I'm going to have. Or you might find out that, you know, hey, people don't want complexity in their pricing and there's a number of ways you can actually test that. And if I find that out, then all of a sudden I'm going to have really, really simple focus pricing, like something like Netflix or something like Spotify, which basically has one, um, maybe two plans, depending on how you look at it. But it really comes down to having customer research and having customer data be something that's central to how you're building your business and essentially deferring those data decisions to that actual data. And, and so what's an example? Let's say we collect research and what, when we look at the data, what would be an example of something that told us we need more of a contact us button versus transparent pricing like Netflix? Yeah, totally. So I think it, it, it comes down to kind of what I was saying, which was the complexity, right? Where so on, on the price intelligently side of our business, it's it's not a plug and play product. So with ProfitWell, you can sign up and literally within two minutes you're hooked up. Um, and once your data is ingested, you have all your analytics. It's you know very, very seamless. You don't have to talk to a human being. On price intelligently side, you essentially have to talk to someone in order to figure out exactly what your pricing needs are what the size and the scope of the problem is, and then we put together a package that's somewhat custom to to you as a buyer. And the basic way that we made that decision was, one, just the functions of our own product, which isn't even collecting data, but it's just understanding who you are as a company, and then collecting data around, oh, interesting, not everyone has the exact same problem or not anyone has the exact same need that kind of pushes us to basically make sure that we have essentially customizable pricing when someone gets on the phone with us. Um, there's also things around like what the willingness to pay is. Typically, higher willingness to pay warrants, you know, sometimes not putting your your pricing out there. But that's kind of an example of, hey, one of these is very touchless. It's very easy to understand, doesn't need to be, have a conversation with anyone. The other is something that where there's customization. And based on the data, we know that it's going to take a phone call to kind of explain that customization. Mm -hmm. And so let's say you're starting from scratch and you've now looked at some of the data. How do you go from there to actually making the decision that which which model to actually go with? Yeah, this is a great question. I think honestly, this is where you earn your paycheck as a leader in a company because you're, it's never going to be perfect. And so many people, they're expecting perfection out of something like their pricing because they've never changed their prices. They're really scared of it. They think people don't realize that things cost money. Um, they realize that, you know, oh, I'm, I'm scared because my customers aren't going to like it. And what's fascinating about it is that most of the time people totally understand that things cost money. And you have to be willing to not have perfect pricing and make this part of a process and make this part of development. And so to answer your question, and I know I'm getting a little bit soapboxy from your particular <laughs> question, but it's something that I'm pretty passionate about where everyone's just like, oh, it's one and done. And it's like, is your acquisition one and done? Is your marketing one and done? Is your retention? No, it's part of a process. And it's one of the highest you know, growth levers in terms of impact in your business, but you're basically not making any decisions. And so when you look at this data and you see what's going on, you have a decision to make around, well, am I going to continue to sell this product in this manner that my customers are suggesting, or am I going to go against the grain and try to find a different customer subset or try to come up with a different product? But it takes that, that 
not even precision, but just that diligence to collect some data, depending on the gravity of, of the decision and collecting a lot more data for the very, very high, you know, impact decision in order to, you know, earn your paycheck as a strategist within your company to basically make a decision. And, and what's funny is that when you collect this data correctly at scale, and I know we're not going into a ton of details, but I can share some examples for the show notes. Um, and, and we can try to go through a couple of details. It's sometimes easier just to show graphs rather than, you know, mm -hmm. explain the graphs. Mm -hmm. But it's funny is a lot of these, a lot of the decisions that you need to make, the data basically answers the question. The data basically indicates, hey, you should go with A versus B um, because this customer does not care about this feature. Um, but the other thing that I would say to help kind of make those decisions is don't try to do your entire pricing at once. Just focus on the different pieces. Let's just focus on packaging for this quarter, basically figuring out which features should go where. Let's just focus on pricing for our current packaging, literally just locking our packaging in place and then making sure that our price points are acceptable for that particular packaging. These are the ways that you can kind of chunk this problem down and basically make decisions in, in kind of a calculated manner that's more process-driven and framework-driven than, frankly, just kind of you know ad hoc in a room politicking about maybe we should change our price here, maybe we should change our price there. Mm -hmm. And I can share an example from our experience for the audience. Up until this year, January, our pricing had minor feature differences between plants, and our pricing was pretty transparent. And we've gone through a lot of data from in terms of qualitative feedback, empirical feedback, and uh, a lot of the complaints from our customers were, well, why is this one little feature only available on your community plan, but not your group plan? And based on that data, we removed all feature restrictions across all pricing plans. And then the other thing that we did is there were admin limits that we had created beyond just the normal contact records. And those were some things that we removed across all pricing plans as well, just to make it simple by looking at that data. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, that's 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 what it comes down to. And what's fascinating, and, and we have the data to, to prove this, is that essentially, or at least show that there's a strong correlation, is that those particular companies that are changing up their pricing, not necessarily raising their prices, but moving features around, moving their value metrics, et cetera, those particular companies that are doing that once at least every six months are essentially growing at a 30 to 40% higher rate than those companies who haven't changed their price um, in, in over a year. And so it's, it's just kind of fascinating seeing you know, just the power of making these little tweaks based on the data that you find or even the qualitative information that you discover. And so for the audience, just to bring it down to a level where they can understand, you know, step one, step two, step three, like I, would, I understand the step one of collecting the data. What is step two? Yeah, that's a great question. So really, so let me back up actually. So step zero or step one is basically define the research question that you're trying to answer concerning your pricing. So it might be, hey, we are in three different countries or continents. What should our pricing be for the different continents? It might be, hey, we're launching this new feature. Which plan should it go in or should it be an add-on? Hey, we think our pricing isn't right. What should our pricing be for these existing tiers? That's really step one because it helps people basically understand and, okay, cool, like, I need to answer this question. I don't need to solve this entire pricing because it's it's something that's, you know, more than just one question. Mm -hmm. The next step then is basically designing the right data collection amongst the right people in order to answer that question. So it's basic scientific method, right? So if I'm looking at, I'm selling to marketers and I'm wondering how this new feature that's, you know, we know is geared towards people who use local marketing within our product, 
I'm not going to necessarily ask everyone about the local marketing feature. I'm only going to ask about the local marketing customers who are out there, right? So I'm going to ask these questions and I can, I can put in the show notes some of these questions, um, you know, basically asking around willingness to pay as well as the relative preference for those features. And then essentially taking those particular questions, going out to those customers and collecting the data. Once I get that data back, the next step or step two or three, depending on how you're looking at this process <laughs> here, is basically to take that particular data and just honestly segment the hell out of it. So basically segment by every single like qualification or segment segmentable question that you have. So the size of the particular respondent, the um, role of the particular respondent, the location, and, and really it, it doesn't need to be everything, but it should be anything that you think is influencing value in one way or the other. Anything you think is driving willingness to pay. So in B2B- like, like a vertical. Yep, like a vertical. So in business-to-business software or business to business, people, businesses are selling to businesses, typically it's things like the size of the company, the size of the team. In consumer products, it's things like household income, location, gender, um, et cetera. And so what you're doing is you're basically looking for what are the factors that are influencing willingness to pay, and you'll see that fairly clearly within the data. And what that allows you to do then with that data is basically start to make your decisions. Oh, it's interesting. Anyone who is using more than you know, 1,000 data points, um, or I won't say data points because we're talking about data, anyone who's using 1,000 widgets or more inside our app, their willingness to pay is 25% higher. Or things like, it looks like no one really cares about these particular features. Maybe we shouldn't even build this particular product. So it allows you to basically have really structured conversations about these decisions Mm -hmm. and ultimately make sure you're deferring to data and not politicking within your company because we've all been in those business conversations where someone goes, oh, I think it's just not going to scale. Or, "Mm, I don't know, that just feels like we're throwing the baby out of the bathwater. Like all these like idioms that people use that all of a sudden just derail the entire conversation based on nothing but someone's opinion and, and it's, um, it's, it's a lot about intuition or gut instinct more so than data-driven decisions that actually look to what the impact of a decision would be and it's the it's a balance of the two because at the end of the day you have to use well I, actually i'm gonna i'm gonna walk that back i don't i think intuition is super important but it's, it's got to be measured intuition in the sense that it's it's based on something and it's it's not strongly held because you need the data to check your intuition and validate and invalidate and then it really takes some strategic vision to understand where you want to go. So I might have some pricing data that says, hey, if I hire 10 salespeople and do a sales-driven model, I can actually charge 20% more. Well, maybe I don't want to hire salespeople because I know I'm not good at managing salespeople and I also want to keep the company small and keep it just me or something like that. Well, that's fine. The data said something. You, it's not that you disagree with the data, but you basically disagree with making a decision in that direction because of some sort of vision you have for your company or the intuition or the self-awareness that you have about what you're able to do in your business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. Yeah, I completely agree. I think uh, you as a founder or growth leader in a business, you your intuition is important, but definitely looking to the data to validate and using the scientific method to figure out whether or not your assumptions are correct is is, is right. Um, so com- coming back to your list, you know, 
step one, define the research question. Step two, do the data collection with the right people and try to retrieve that data. Step three, take that data, segment it. Step four, find patterns. For example, is someone with a certain income level willing to pay a different amount than someone with a different income level? And then what, what, what's step five? What follows after that? Yeah, step five is essentially you know, get the guts to, to make a decision and put it out there and track success or failure. So if you've done this research, you've, you've basically taken it upon yourself to hedge your risk as much as humanly possible. And if I'm making, you know, a $10 decision, I might not collect any data. I might have a qualitative conversation with someone like, Hey, this actually was really good for our business. You should buy this product. Okay, great. I don't need to collect data on that. I'm just going to go try it out if it's a cheap enough product. If I'm making a $10 million decision, I'm probably going to collect a lot of data. And but once I've collected that data and I've hedged the risk of making that decision, I'm going to make I'm going to push forward. I'm going to put out the the actual change and if if you wanted to, I can get into like how to communicate price increases or changes and those types of things, but depending on the gravity of the decision, I might, you know, run it again qualitatively against some customers. I might put together a really tight communication plan. I might do a couple of different things, but at the end of the day, what I'll do is I'll I'll put the decision out there and then I'll track success or failure based on my research question. So my research question should typically, and I didn't say this before, it should typically tie to some sort of a number or hypothesis. So I believe, you know, or how much can we raise our prices by X? We feel like our pricing is off. And the answer might be zero. The answer might be I have to lower my prices by 10%, but you're trying to do some sort of an outcome for your business and you want to make sure that it's basically increasing that ARPU or increasing um, the average revenue per user for those of you who don't know the acronym but or improving my retention or improving my expansion revenue depending on the research question that you had and based on tracking that you will pull it back if something's failing or you'll you know accelerate and move on to the next thing if it's worked out fairly well mm-hmm. and so again it's going back to that scientific method where you put out a hypothesis and now you're out there testing it. So let's talk about, which is, I guess, step five is making a decision to put it out there and then whatever that looks like in terms of packaging or your price points or the different feature feature differences between pricing plans. And then step six might be how you communicate it. So you talked about that. So let's say you are making a pricing change. How do you get it out there to market? Yeah, definitely. So you're going to make this pricing change. So now it's time to, you know, basically put out, put it out. So it depends on what the pricing change is. Um, not only what the actual pricing change is, meaning are we raising prices? Are we moving a feature to one tier or another? Are we simply just launching a new feature into one particular tier or another? Um, like it, de- that, it depends a little bit on that, but let's just assume we're raising prices because that's the one that everyone wants to know about. So if we're raising prices, it depends on the gravity of the price raise. What I would do in this particular case is I would do an analysis of every single customer of how much it's going to affect their particular payment. So if it's going to be something that's like only 5% increase, um, I might actually not go out to that user and raise their price because it might not be worth actually having the conversation with them if it's only a 5% increase. Now, if it's a 50 to 75 to 100% increase, that's a user that I might actually get on the phone with if it's if it's a high price point. If you're going from $1 to $2, you probably don't need to get on the phone with someone and actually would be very, very ineffective. But if you're going from you know someone paying you $1,000 a month to someone paying you two, three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 a month, that's, that's phone call worthy in right. particular. 
And so I would segment my users based on the gravity of the price increase. And if it's just simply a 15 to 45, 50% price increase overall, what I would do is I would, I would basically just take that user list. Um, and then it really comes down to communication. So I would want to make sure that there weren't any major support problems, any major bugs, that NPS was at a steady state, if not good. Um, NPS being um, net promoter score, it's a measure of customer satisfaction for those folks who don't know. But I would take, I would make sure that that was occurring. I would make sure that in the past 30, 60 days, I had launched um, new features. And hopefully in the past year, I had launched a lot of features and made improvement to the product, whether it's cosmetic improvements, actual features, et cetera. But I want to make sure that when when I launch this price increase, especially if it's a larger one, that it's very, very evident that the product has improved, and it's very, very evident that um, you know things things are working out really well. And so, assuming that those things are the case, and it doesn't need to be a home run, meaning you could have had a little bug in a couple of aggravated people. You could have, you know, maybe you didn't launch that feature, you know, for it was 45 days ago when you launched that feature. That's totally fine. Um, or you're an existing product that's been improving, you know, your your product significantly for the past 18 months without increasing your pricing. What I would do then, I'd put together a very honest, very transparent email to your particular customers. And what I mean by that is. I would put it in their um, the tone of their perspective. So what I mean by that is, listen, I you know we've we've improved the product dramatically. We've added this feature, this feature, this feature, this feature. We've done this, this, and this. Um, we've brought you this partnerships, just really, really playing up just how much value they're getting. And we've improved whatever this metric is for this particular you know the outcome of using this particular product for our users across the board. NPS is very high. You can even mention just how good people love the product. What you're trying to do is you're trying to basically show the goodwill and remind the particular user or the particular customer that, you know, it's pretty cool to have the product that they have. And then do that, obviously, in a short amount of time. I just made a lot of comments on it, so I wouldn't necessarily make like a three-page letter before you get to the point. But then make it very clear, you know, because we've added this value, we are, you know, going to be increasing prices on this and this date um, by this and this much. Here's what your price would be, or here's what your price will be right now. And because you've been so loyal what we're going to do is we're actually going to keep you at your current price for the next six months or the next year. So meaning your price is going to be at $10 for the next year. And then after that, you're going to be bumped up to $15. That's what's called a grandfather discount. Um, and it's probably one of the smoothest ways to actually increase prices without fully grandfathering a particular customer um, into existing prices, which is something that we don't recommend doing. So I would send that email. And at the end of the email, and this is a nice little tactic that a lot of people can use, you can say something along the lines of, if this is going to materially impact your business or this is going to Im materially impact you, uh, please respond directly to this and we'll see if we can work something out. And the beauty of that particular line is, is that after you've explained just how wonderful you've you've been to the customer, and assuming that's actually true, you shouldn't you know trick people. But assuming that that's all true, and assuming that you've really reminded people, you're basically pointing out that like, hey, we've done a lot of stuff, but we're here if you need us, and that at least saves some churn if some people are going to come in, and you can probably work something out, or at the very least get on the phone with someone and have a, a higher kind of a higher fidelity conversation with them about, you know, why the price is increasing and things like that. So long story short, I know that's a lot, but that, that email 
maybe it corresponds with a blog post, maybe it corresponds with something else, but you're basically really, really reinforcing your value, justifying the increase, and you've already done your research so that theoretically you've minimized as much churn or as much you know backlash as possible. Um, and I will say you are going to get churn, you're going to get you know some sort of people canceling, even if you lower your price. So it's something where you're just reminding people that they're paying, so you're gonna see some churn, but there's normally gonna be a little spike, and then within a week or so, that spike normally goes back down. Yeah, that was that was really great, man. I want you, I want to appreciate you sharing that. Um, and I can actually give some real life examples from from our business uh, with Wild Apricot. We've actually done two big pricing changes in the last four years. And in the first one, we gave customers the ability to grandfather or lock in their previous prices by prepaying in advance for one year or two years, and that helped smooth over a lot of issues with customers. And it also helped us reduce churn going forward. Um, and then with the current pricing increase. We've literally followed this playbook. It's feature after feature. We've released some major functionality into our software. For example, where we are launching a new online store module that all the platform, all this, all the, all the, the associations that are using our platform will get now access to on top of all the regular functionality. And that's baked into one of the reasons why we're increasing the prices, along with no feature differentiation across pricing plans, along with the no admins and all that. So yes, it's it it is painful, and sometimes you get complaints but if you send out the messaging that way and there is actual real value for the customer base it usually does go over well yeah no that's awesome yeah um so now that we've talked about how you communicated let's talk about measurement and connecting it back to the research question that you've defined at the top um Talk about, you know, is it is it at the end of the day just measuring revenue from your perspective? And I'm happy to give my take as well. Just how do you define success of picking a pricing strategy? So it's, to me, like to really break it down, I mean, it, it does start with what is your average revenue per user? And what is the growth of that average revenue per user? So that that really is the, 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 the core aspect of of kind of a good or bad pricing strategy. If your average revenue per user has not increased in, you know, a year, then then you kind of have a problem. Um, that being said, there's a lot of sub metrics. You know, there's things like, well, this particular feature, we're trying to improve our retention um, by getting more and more people to be on annual plans versus monthly plans. And so the metric there is obviously going to be like, what is the proportion of people on annual plans? And then from there, like, did that actually improve our retention? So I would say like the the blunt kind of metric is really around ARPU. And then there's submetrics depending on what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. What about things like NPS? Like, for example, with our last pricing increase, one of the things we found is Initially, there was a slight dip in NPS, and then over time, it just climbed back up to where it was. Um, but it is something that it's important to keep in mind for the long-term health of the business. Yeah, I think I, at the end of the day, I, I have I, I don't have a problem with NPS. We use NPS ourselves, but I do have a problem in particular with with kind of the it's 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 a it's a, a sledgehammer. It's not a scalpel. Yeah. So like. NPS going down by 10% is not something where you should be alarmed. 10% or going NPS going down by like half or 75% or like, you know, it's, it basically goes down to zero or past zero. Obviously that's a problem. And so I think that, um, to me, NPS, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more binary where it's like, is it improving 
in a wide swath, um, not is it going up and down and kind of natural fluctuations. I will say that, you know, obviously if your NPS is terrible, so like if it's like negative 50, like Comcast, which I don't think is negative 50, but <laughs> Comcast is not great. Yeah. Like they can raise their prices because they're kind of a monopoly, but it's still, you know, something where, um, you know, it's still something where like, if I was in that position in a somewhat competitive or an open market, like I wouldn't raise my prices then because I have bigger issues. My bigger issues is my customers don't really like my product. Um, so I would say that NPS, just to kind of summarize, I know I've kind of rambled a little bit around this, but I would use it more as a leading indicator of if I have, you know, some bigger problems that I need to fix first. Um, but more than likely those problems are really related to like product support, et cetera. Meaning, like, if your NPS is terrible, you shouldn't be ramping up your acquisition. You shouldn't be ramping up your your, your monetization. You should be really figuring out why people don't like your product um, before you do anything. And I think most people, they're like, "Oh, our NPS isn't great, but that'll that'll work itself out. Let's just keep acquiring users." And it's like you're you're burning those bridges. And in some businesses, that's okay, but in most businesses, it's not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense, and it's just that old adage, right? Like, if your product is bringing value to the end user, then the likelihood of a small price adjustment up or down 5, 10, 15% is not really going to change how your customer perceives your product. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, yeah. And I would I would expect, you know, and one thing we didn't really talk about is, is also collecting data from multiple different sources, meaning your current customers, your prospects, and then people who have never heard of you that are your target customers. And if if it should always be going up, meaning target customers who have never heard of you should have the lowest willingness to pay relative to prospects who haven't used the product who um, but have your brand um, you know kind of in their minds should be a little bit higher willingness to pay and then customers who are using your product should have the highest willingness to pay but if you have that opposite direction then you have a major product problem and a major customer success mm-hmm. problem what about what about retention and, and and churn in particular and the impact of a pricing adjustment or or change or increase uh, on, a, on a metric like that because even though your average revenue per user could increase you could lose that value in the form of churn if you if your prices have changed drastically yeah i think i mean overall and so if i recharacterize the question you know it's it's you know how does it how does pricing impact churn or retention is that another way to i would put say it? that but also just looking at increase in ARPU alone won't tell you whether or not a campaign was successful if some customer a lot of customers leave you because your ARPU could increase but the total churn could could be more than that sure but I think the assumption there is that there so sure absolutely but it, the the assumption at least in my mind is that like ARPU increasing not at the detriment right. of your other pieces, right? Like meaning if your, um, your, your conversion rate might go down, but your overall revenue growth might be Mm -hmm. going up or your ARPU might be going up or excuse me, your, your churn rate might go up, but your net retention might be, or might be going up as well. Meaning your churn is actually getting worse, but your net retention is going up because you're losing a lot of those customers that maybe just weren't the right customers. And so it's, it's one of those things where you have to be very balanced about this because sometimes churn is good because you've filled your entire product with like the wrong customers who aren't going to get you to the next major revenue milestone. Um, and it's one of those things where you have to obviously, you know, be measured and qualify 
movements in, in even ARPU, let alone, you know, some of the other metrics we're mm-hmm, talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, that makes a lot of sense. And the reason I brought that up is just to get you to say that point and also share that I think forecasting is a really big piece of this. Uh, one of the lessons that we learned from our last pricing change was uh, forecasting out how each of those metrics will change. Like how much do we expect new acquisition to be impacted? Like the number of trials we get or what percentage of trials convert to a paying user? What percentage of existing customers do we expect to expand to a higher account? And what percentage of customers do we expect to churn? And then measuring performance of those metrics at milestones like six months out, one year out to see if we're, we've met those initial assumptions uh, based on that decision that we've made with pricing. Yeah, I think, I mean, the biggest thing I said, and I already belabored the point a bit, is that it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's a process. Um, your, your acquisition, your retention isn't, you know, instantly fixed with, you know, one change. Your pricing isn't going to be either. Uh, and it's actually a lot easier to work on your pricing, I would argue, than it is to fix your churn. And, and the reason is because when you have something like churn, you know, there, there's a big piece of churn that's maybe delinquencies and maybe mechanical, but then there's a lot of fragmentation around, oh, I didn't like that feature. I didn't like support. I didn't like this. There's a lot of, there's, there's kind of death by a thousand mm-hmm. paper cuts, if that makes sense. Whereas with, with pricing, it's kind, it's more just like, who are my customers? Which don't get me wrong is, is not, you know, the easiest thing in the world. It's not like flipping a switch, but it's actually, you know, a, a lot easier to collect data and then make a decision based on the data than it is to kind of root out all of the different problems that exist, you know, with with something like your churn or even like your acquisition channels. Um, that that's the biggest thing I would say. And I, the last thing I would say is I know we talked a lot about data, but remember your your data is an input, so you need to know the limits of your data. If you only collect ten responses to a little survey that you get, it's it's strictly qualitative and you know, based on the level of your decision, you might need to basically disregard that information. Um, but you shouldn't necessarily say, oh, data is useless because, you know, at the very least you need to understand what people are thinking and there's enough methods out there to collect data on that that topic that um, you, you would be, you know, basically idiotic or be a liability to your company if you don't at least collect the data and understand the data before making that decision. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um that's awesome. And and if in case like there's a lot of SaaS founders and CEOs who listen to this podcast, in case they're thinking about rethinking their pricing strategy or what to do next, how do they get in touch with you or, or find a way to work with you guys? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm PC at ProfitWell.com. Uh, we you know have a number of different uh, lead forms and all that kind of fun stuff on our website. Uh, but yeah, just PC at ProfitWell.com. If you have any questions, I'm I'm pretty open about you know sharing and empowering you even without you know selling to you. So if you have any questions, I can always share a resource, an ebook, some data we collected, um, just to get you moving because we're big big evangelists not only on pricing but also just improving the subscription economy. Yeah, absolutely. And I personally recommend uh, Patrick's blog on Price Intelligently or ProfitWell. I personally learned a lot from both of those. So I recommend that highly to, to the audience. Um, and for you, Patrick, we just want to appreciate you for taking the time for doing this. I think pricing is one of those pain point areas for a lot of SaaS founders. And it's a little vexing. It's a little scary because of how big the implications are for a business. So I want to appreciate you for coming on and making that complex uh, subject easier to digest and understand. Absolutely, man. And we uh, we wrote a 150-page book on this. It's well it's well chaptered, so you don't have to read the whole thing necessarily. But if you want to go deeper on it, it's free. You can find it on our website. And um, yeah, more than happy to help. What's the name of the book? Just plug it. 
Um, it's developing your subscription pricing strategy. So pretty straightforward. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things you can download it. It's a PDF and stuff like that. So it's, it's one of those things where it kind of goes through the, the process that I described in much more detail. Awesome. Everybody check it out. And uh, Patrick, thanks a lot for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, brother. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's episode, guys. Before you end this episode, I have a few requests. Uh, One, if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Number two, please leave a rating and review uh, just so that other people who are looking for similar information or podcasts like this can discover it better. And number three, if you want to work with us at How to Sass, check out the website www.howtosass.com or email me directly. Uh, that's shiv at howtosass.com. Uh, other than that, thanks for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.